You've read his scoops on Axios, and you've watched his Axios on HBO TV interviews. Now it's time to get to know the man who won an Emmy Award for his never-ending news-breaking journalism. From his Jewish upbringing in Australia to his ascent through Washington political journalism, it's time to get to know Jonathan Swan in a way that only Jewish Insider can. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I am Jared Bernstein. Jared, breaking news of the week, of course, the Israeli government uh, going to collapse. They will be going into new elections, another election. We thought this uh, very interesting, diverse coalition uh, could hold. A lot of people predicted it would fall long ago. It has finally fallen, a new election underway. Uh, Foreign Minister uh, Yair Lapid set to become the prime minister under the coalition agreement of how things would happen if they went to new elections early, and uh, that will happen now. So a different government in place for however amount of time it takes to get to the elections and actually form a coalition and, and, a, and a government, if one can be formed. Questions abound. Where is Bibi Netanyahu in all of this? What will happen to Likud in, in a new election? So uh, here we go. Here we go, Jared. Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, you and I should probably be making Aliyah and becoming political consultants in Israel with the amount of elections they're having. So, uh, you know, as yeah. you've seen, though, as you've seen, though, uh, from all the different pollsters and campaign strategists in America who just do the business there, they don't move there. They don't. They just get hired from the U.S. That that's yeah. always how I've seen yeah. it work. So, you know, you just got to get on one of those trains. That's all. But but it's going to be a wild ride uh, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. The other big news out I wanted to touch on because it's actually something I just authored, published uh, out of my FDD role, uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, a company called Morningstar, those of you who are investors or in the finance community or know anything about stocks probably have seen Morningstar ratings before. Morningstar, big financial research uh, investment firm. They uh, recently acquired a couple of years ago an ESG research firm called Sustainalytics, which had a history of anti-Israel uh, accusations and uh, various research and, and thoughts they were promoting the BDS movement campaign against Israel. Uh, there was an investigation that's been going on for a while now into Morningstar uh, based on some evidence that was revealed by an organization called JLens, which is a Jewish organization within the ESG movement. Uh, that got uh, thoroughly investigated. White and Case, a big law firm, took a look at everything as the state of Illinois was actually investigating as part of their own anti-BDS statute. As people know, over 30 states with anti-BDS laws in the nation, Illinois uh, leading among them. Well, this report came out last week, and it showed just complete, systemic, pervasive anti-Israel bias at the core of how research and ratings are produced for a major flagship ESG research product and company. Uh, And though the report tried to whitewash this uh, and say that there's nothing really going on there, just some minor tweaks needed to be made, I went through the report and just published, uh, you can see it on the FDD website, uh, a full report on how Morningstar has systemic bias problems here. The sources of information being used are pro-BDS, part of the BDS campaign itself. Uh, the way in which they trigger investigations uh, of Israel and Israel-based companies, a core of how they how they do the research and put together ratings. So uh, a lot to answer for there, and I expect many other states to start taking a closer look at Morningstar and, frankly, all other ESG research firms, Jared. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is a, uh, uh, unfortunately, a common theme where people who are, you know, um, trying to do Israel harm with the BDS, in the BDS movement are, try- are, are 
co-opting in some places, you know, otherwise legitimate causes um, and attaching BDS and BDS uh, nomenclature to, you know, things like like Black Lives Matter or things like um, ESG. And, and I think it's important to separate out the legit, you know, issues that need to be addressed here um, in social justice, in environmental sustainability, but call out when we see the BDS movement attaching itself to things that have nothing to do with it. No, that's exactly right. And this is sort of like a hidden BDS, really, because like when Unilever or Ben and Jerry's makes a big announcement, they're pulling out of Israel and boycott Israel. Okay, we can see it, right? You can rally against it. You can understand who's doing what to you. When you just get ratings reports, right, if you're an institutional investor, if you're just looking for for where should I put my money into, if you have some sort of a passive investment fund that's just looking for five-star ratings in a certain category or something like that, and they've already baked in the BDS campaign to the numbers, right, if the research and the ratings to drive investment has already put systemic bias against Israel-based firms, you're not going to know about it. You're not right. going to see it. That's what makes this so pernicious and so important to really to really get down. So, anyways, I just wanted to touch on that. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, but let's not spend any more time. Let's get to our guest uh, today, Jonathan Swan, national correspondent at Axios, covering both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. For those who may not understand that, that's Capitol Hill and the White House. Just want to make sure that was clear. Known best for his scoops and breaking news, Jonathan was the first to report that the U.S. would pull out of the Paris climate deal, the first to report that former President Trump would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and the first to report Trump would end the DACA program. As the star of Axios' HBO show, Swan has interviewed global leaders, including Ukraine's president, the NATO secretary general, the director general of the WTO, Iraq's president, Pakistan's prime minister, and of course, Donald Trump, an interview seen and shared by more than 100 million people for which Swan received an Emmy Award as well as the 2022 Aldo Beckman Award for overall excellence in White House coverage. He has interviewed the most powerful Democrats and Republicans in the United States, ranging from Bernie Sanders on the left to Mitch McConnell on the right. Jonathan Swan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, here's what everybody wants to know, obviously. What is a nice Jewish boy from Australia doing here covering Washington politics all these years? Uh, I came here to control the media, like we all do, you know? Um, every, every, every Australian's dream, just so you know, that's really just an Australian whoa, stereotype. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, I am Jewish, though, uh, and I am Australian, um, and I grew up kind of... Uh, in the media, really. I mean, my my family, my dad is a journalist. Um, he's a radio and television journalist in Australia. My uncle and aunt were crime reporters. Um, my first paid job was when I was in high school. I was 15. Uh, I worked at a tabloid, the Sun Herald, on what was called Police Rounds, which is a thing that I don't even know if they have anymore. But um, back in the day, uh, it was where you put, you know, basically a grunt um, and you'd sit in this room with all these scanners um, that ha hacked into the police radios. And, they, you know, you basically did eight hour shifts in this dark room listening to cops talk to each other. Um, and so that was my kind of introduction to journalism. And I was a political reporter in in Australia. I worked in Canberra. I mean, before that, I'd covered local stuff, you know, crime cops, you know, and really just very, very local, you know, here's a restaurant opening or whatever. Um, 
And then I went to Canberra, covered um, federal politics, and I was really obsessed with America. I'd studied American history. I was following US politics really closely. I'd always consumed a lot of American media and wanted to see if I could crack it over here, um, not as a foreign correspondent, but as uh, an actual doing the same kind of reporting that I was doing in Australia, which was like taking people behind closed doors, telling them what's happening, you know, breaking in hopefully a lot of stories. Um, and then the way I got over here was uh, a fellowship. Um, someone told me basically, no one's gonna hire you from Australia. No one cares how many stories you break in Australia. You need a visa for a start. And then maybe you'll you know, con convince some sympathetic person to hire you. Um, and so I had a fellowship and, and towards the end of that year, I thought I was probably gonna go back to Australia because it wasn't really working out. I was still on staff at the Sydney Morning Herald. And at the end, Two people offered me a job and I chose to go to The Hill. Um, Bob Cusack at The Hill, uh, who I still owe a lot to, um, gave me a job and and it was often sailing. So, Jonathan, thank you for, for that because we were wondering, Rich and I in our pregame were wondering a lot about that. But tell us about growing up as a, a Jewish kid in Australia and what you know life is like down under. It's obviously a... Uh, very old Jewish community, very tight knit Jewish community. But what's that upbringing like? Uh, for I think a lot of our listeners, that would be uh, interesting to them. Well, I had a so my dad um, uh, grew up in Glasgow, and very poor. So so his family left um, Odessa actually in early like around 1905. It was a pogrom, as you know. It was my great grandfather was killed in that pogrom. And they got on a boat and they thought they were going to end up in the United States. They actually ended up in Glasgow. Um, and they had no money. Um, my granddad lived in what was at the time um, the worst, like one of the worst slums in Western Europe um, in Glasgow. My dad grew up very poor. The name was Swirsky. Um, they, co they couldn't get a job. Their family had no money. Um, and when dad was about eight or nine, they changed the name to Swan and he got a job um, pretty quickly. He was a music teacher. Um, so dad grew up in a pretty constrained environment, not a lot of money. First in his family to go to university, became a doctor and moved to Australia. And I grew up in a, and, and as you can imagine, there aren't many Jews in Glasgow. So dad was a real minority in Glasgow. He, uh, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of uh, hostility, and it made him more and more attached to his Judaism. And so when he moved to Australia, he was, um, determined to hang on to it. My mom actually converted to Judaism. She grew up um, Anglican. And I grew up in a, a very liberal reform Jewish household, uh, going to a shul called Temple Emmanuel, um, you know, did my bar mitzvah there. And it was part of my life, but um, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the center of my life in the way that some, uh, some people grow up. So it was always, you know, we had Shabbat dinner. Uh, the, like my dad worked his guts out, but the one thing we always did every week was Shabbat dinner as a family on Fridays. You know, went to shul, I would say fairly infrequently, but obviously for high holidays. And that was sort of my, my Jewish upbringing. I have a lot of journalism questions for you and, and want to get into them, but, but while we're still here before we leave, any observations you have on the differences in the American Jewish community as you've observed it while you've lived here compared to where you grew up in the communities sort of 
in whether it's in Europe, in Scotland, and in, in, hmm. in Australia, and just sort of any observations you have of sort of how the community uh, hangs together, operates, the community environment, anything you've seen in the, the, the contrast to the American community? I'm very wary of making generalizations because I've only seen such a small sliver, sliver of it here. I, I do know in Sydney when I, where I grew up, um, the Jewish community is fairly insular. Um, and I don't know that it's quite as insular here, but it may well be. I, I'm just not, I don't want to make any sweeping generalizations. What, what, what I found to be true, and maybe this is part, partly kind of the times have changed as well, but um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism when I was growing up. It was very kind of frequent. It was just sort of casual and in everything. And I never hear it here ever. And that might be for different reasons. I, I, I don't want to sort of, again, I don't want to generalize um, at all, but um, I found it to be much more prevalent um, when I was growing up than, than I have in the US. But um, it's possible that that was just a schoolyard thing or, you know, something that happens here that I'm not aware of. So I basically don't feel qualified to answer that question. And I don't want to make any sort of glib uh, comparisons um, that, are, that may be inaccurate. Okay, I, I, I want to digest that and maybe circle back around, but I want to jump fast forward to your journalism career. Um, you've had unbelievable access to lots of people in very high places, particularly to Donald Trump. A lot of questions to ask you on him alone. You had significant time with the president. You heard him talk more than most. What do you make of him? In what, in what sense do you mean, what do I make of him? Well, I mean, he's exactly who he appears to be. I don't have it. Here's what I would say. I don't have any special insight into Donald Trump. Um, he, there's, not, there's not some private Trump that's hugely different. Now, he's, he's a little... Uh, one thing I would say about Donald Trump in private settings is uh, he can be very charming. Um, he can... It, it's like a hospitality kind of thing. He's always asking, you know, do you have... You want a diet, Coke or whatever? And, and you know, it's sort of... Uh, a conversation with him in a, in a private setting, just it's again, it's sort of like his public rhetoric. It just spins from issue to issue. It's not linear. You can't sort of follow a train of thought. And so one of the challenges in interviewing him, it's like riding a Bronco. You might have a line of questioning or you might have the perfect question that you crafted about the Mueller investigation. You could come up with the smartest question ever and you put it to Donald Trump and he, he doesn't respond to questions. He responds to keywords. So the minute you say Russia or Mueller, you're really just uh, subjecting your audience to a four to five minute rant about the hoax and the fake news and blah, blah, blah. blah. So you really have to kind of accept that and think that through. Um, and what am I trying to accomplish here in this, uh, in this line of questioning? What's he going to say? Because it's usually quite predictable. Um, and how do I actually try and get something out of him that no one has before or something different or hold him accountable for something um, that he hasn't been held accountable for? So like interviewing him is extremely difficult. Um, and, you know, he uh, he says a lot of things that are just completely false. He just like he will, he will, in a typical conversation with him, he might say 10 things and nine of them might be just just bear no resemblance to reality. Um, and that's a challenge, too, because, you know, Again, if you're interviewing somebody, you're serving the audience. You're the audience's representative in the chair. And you kind of have to pick and choose. Unless you want it to be unwatchable, 
you actually sort of can't fact check everything. It's it's a really challenging um, exercise uh, doing it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but like, um, yeah, that's sort of how I think about Donald I, I, Trump. I'm I'm sort of curious. Why you? Why do why do you think he liked you so much? I mean, well, I, why did he, why did he talk to you? I so think much? that's a mis. I think it's sort of a misperception. I mean, he doesn't actually. I mean, you know, and particularly after the second interview, he you know said some interesting things about me to other people. But um, I think that's a misperception. I think the thing about Donald Trump um, is he engages actually with. You'd be shocked at how many journalists he engages with. Um, you know, he rants and raves about different journalists, but actually. Um, pretty much every book jur- journalist who's doing a book on him, from Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig at the Washington Post to Jonathan Carl at ABC to Maggie Haberman at the New York Times, Trump has spent hours sitting down with them, talking to them for the book. And at the same time, he's ranting about the fake news and the Washington Post and the fake news, New York Times, and the failing this and the, this guy's a fake. And Josh Dorsey's a scumbag, but he met with jo- he interviewed with jo- Josh Dorsey like two months ago. Um, he talks to everyone, and it's 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 sort of a performance, uh, actually. Um, so there wasn't. I didn't have this. Uh, my relationship with him was not in any way unique. Um, I think what to the extent that I hopefully somewhat distinguished myself on the Trump beat, it was actually because of my sources at the lower level um, beneath him, um, and the breadth of those sources and the depth of them that helped me piece things together, rather than direct access to him, though, of course, I did have some of that direct access to him. So can, can take us through like a comparison of Trump covering the Trump White House to covering the Biden White House in terms of sourcing, leaking, competing agendas, yeah. uh, you know, that that whole business, because, you know, in the in the Trump in the Trump White House, it seemed like there was a thousand different people with a thousand different yeah. agendas. So, well, there's a. Uh, firstly, I'll start with one comparison. I've been trying to interview Joe Biden for three years. Been asking for interviews with him for three years, and they just won't let me interview him. So, um, I can't sit down with Joe Biden. That's a difference. I can't interview the president um, because I'm not allowed to. Um, that's a difference. I'd love to interview Joe Biden. Um, he doesn't do interviews. He's got very few, um, and they're very selective about who he, who he does them with, which is very different to Trump. Um, the other difference, which is really probably more getting to what you asked, is Joe Biden, um, the White House is effectively controlled by sort of five people, and they're all basically family in the sense that they've known Biden and been part of the Biden operation since the early 80s. Um, Ron Klain, Anita Dunn, Steve Reschetti, Bruce Reed, Mike Donilon. It is a an absolutely impenetrable fortress, that, that tight group around him. And, you know, that's why you see almost no real inside-the-room reporting on how to Biden is making his really sensitive decisions because I'll give you a little secret, which I'm sure both of you are very aware of. The decisions aren't being made in the 40 person senior staff call at 820. They're being made in a tiny room. Most of the staff have never heard a decision being made. They actually are not in the room for any of that. And they have no earthly idea. uh, Some of these really intimate conversations where the really tough stuff is being worked out. So then there's a circle around that, which are people who the president respects and trusts and 
you know, um, Jake Sullivan and, and, and there are others. Um, and, and for sure, they're in that decision-making group. But again, it's, it's a bunch of people who have long-standing relationships with each other. Um, there isn't this uh, factionalism that, that, that characterized the Trump White House, this lack of loyalty um, and desire to leak and, and, you know, burn each other down. Um, there's no equivalent, uh, I, I think it's an obvious point to make, there is no Steve Bannon in the Joe Biden White House. Um, and there is no, you know, Anthony Scaramucci, and, and you know, go down the list. Which um, got to make it less entertaining too to cover. Uh, it's more difficult to cover. It's much more difficult to cover. It's much more difficult to get real information. It's not that his senior staff are inaccessible. You have you can talk to any of them at different times. It's that they won't tell you anything, um, or they'll just give you, you know, talking points or, or whatever, or sort of, you know. So I guess kudos to them. It's really hard. Um, I've broken some stories that they, you know, that I was really happy. You know, I got the NSC document from the day before Kabul fell, which was basically showing how ill-prepared they were. And there have been leaks, um, uh, but it's hard. It's really hard. And, um, and in the Trump administration, the leaks were, as everyone's commented, uh, plentiful. So sort of a flip question of Jared's, and that is, is there anything that would surprise people to learn about either Trump himself or or the Trump administration? You know, there, there's so much ink has been spilt on sort of how, I don't want to say messed up, but uh, non-traditional, uh, unconventional the White House was, uh, especially with, with press coverage and, and media leaks. It was something that you encountered that would just like, you know what, people probably don't realize this. I think in totality, there's nothing that would really surprise people. I do think that like some of the coverage um, sort of blurs everyone together and makes everyone seem the same, whereas it wasn't the case at all. There were um, there were people in there who were basically just doing their job and you know doing their best to um, put forward what they considered to be good policy. Um, and it wasn't every day, you know, people throwing bananas at each other. Uh, you know, that sort of caricature was a little over the top. But in saying that, the policy process was um, often very, very chaotic. And to the point where, as I reported at the end of the Trump administration, um, Trump got his head of personnel, John McEntee, to um, send, to, to write, got his office to author um, an order that was sent to the Pentagon ordering them to withdraw troops from Afghanistan um, before the end of Trump's term. Let's just say that's not the typical policy process um, that you would see in an administration. So some of the really extreme stuff, it just happened. So, you know, it was there. It is true that, um, you know, Sidney Power, Michael Flynn and whatever were in there for hours discussing martial law, you know, on December the 18th. But it's also true that there were disciplined people, um, you know, like Secretary Pompeo and, and others who were, who were trying to get um, policy accomplished um, during the Trump administration. So you, co- Jonathan, you cover a lot of ground on a lot of issues with a lot of personalities, which means the news possibilities are endless on any given day. Um, and we all, you know, you drive a lot of eyeballs and you know, move the conversation. How do you determine 
what rises to the level of a story for you on Axios? There's a really difficult question to answer because there's no science to it. Um, to some extent, I'm just following my own interests. I'm lucky I've got a lot of flexibility axios to follow what I want to cover. So it's probably just a grab bag of, of things that I'm personally interested in um, is, is the truthful answer to it. Um, and also, I do ask myself the question, though, often, what, what can I bring to something that is um, hopefully... I don't want to say unique because that would be too obnoxious because I'm, I'm not suggesting I'm unique. Um, but what can I, what can I do that perhaps my competition isn't doing? Um, uh, it's very hard to come up against the very, very well-resourced newsrooms where they're putting 10 people on a story um, and, and they really flood the zone. And so there are certain stories where, um, you know, frankly, I'm just not competing as well. Um, and I just have to make kind of choices because time is finite and what can I do that is going to add value rather than be, um, you know, duplicating what others are doing. I really try not to, um, duplicate what is being done elsewhere. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a story I'm working on right now, which I'm not going to talk about, which is like, a bigger story that I think no one's covering. And, and, and I, I got really interested in it and kind of obsessed with it. And I've been chipping away at it for like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but there's no science to it. It's, it's really just, um, you know, following my nose. Axios on HBO clearly took you to another level. Um, so you're sort of breaking news by day in DC, competing with the likes of Bill Maher by night, multiple audiences, different demands and interests from those audiences. How did you view Axios on HBO as you were going through it as compared to your, let's call it the day job uh, on, on Axios proper? Well, so, so I, I, I'm a reporter. Um, I, I love reporting. Uh, pretty simple. Um, I've come out of newspapers. I still love newspapers. That's still where my heart is, really. I love print reporting. Um and the TV, the HBO thing came on as sort of a surprise. I was never, I never lusted after doing television. Um, I don't really like being on TV that much, to be honest with you. It's not something I don't, you know, derive self-worth from being on TV or it doesn't sort of uh, give me a warm feeling inside to, to be on a panel, you know, whatever. What I do love and became completely obsessed with, and you're probably getting a theme, I'm quite an obsessive person when I, you know, get on something is interviewing. I love interviewing. I love the art of one-on-one -on -one interviewing. And it, it, it used to be done quite differently at longer form, um, just with much more preparation. And, and there's a whole bunch of things that uh, just because our culture is sped up so much and our news culture is sped up so much that we've sort of lost, um, to a large extent about the way that interviews used to be conducted. And to the extent I was trying to do anything with this opportunity was how do I try to do some of the types of interviews that I, you know, admire and have studied um, over the years. Um, you know, there's a woman, uh, well, I, she, she went a bit round the bend in, when just the last decade of her life, but she's a hero of mine. Um, in her peak, uh, which is, uh, her name's Oriana Falaci. And in the 60, between about 1960 and 19 sort of early eighties, 
she put together, in my opinion, um, the finest series of interviews uh, that's been done in modern journalism. Um, everyone from you know Deng Xiaoping, uh, Golda Meir, the Ayatollah, she famously uh, ripped off her headdress and, and it was this very dramatic scene. She, her interviews would cause international news. Um, but if you read the transcripts of them, she was a master. Uh, the way she uh, the way she she developed a line of questioning, the way her interviews had an arc. Uh, she, she's as close. To, some of her interviews are as close to perfect. Henry Kissinger said it was the most disastrous news interview he ever did when he sat with her. She had this way of coaxing these powerful men, and they almost always were men, to say things that they that revealed themselves. Um, you know, Kissinger talked about how he was like the cowboy on his own on the horse riding off. It was so embarrassing. I mean, just, and this was at the height of the Vietnam war. Um, she got him to say that it was a useless war. I mean, just, she had this ability. It was almost magical to get these powerful people to say things. And so again, I'm not comparing myself to her because I think she's on a different level, but to the extent that there was an ambition, it was to do that kind of work. And um, I was lucky enough to have that platform for three years to do it. So most importantly, how are Rich and I doing in terms of our interviewing skills? I mean, you know. Well, we have the arc. The arc is, you just haven't figured it out yeah. yet. The arc is there. No, you don't, you don't have to answer. I would say. Yeah. Oh, you can answer. I would say heavy on, heavy on gotcha questions. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of cheap <laughs> kind of shots. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> We're 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 more Mar than Axios on HBO. I think yeah, I think that's what you would probably have to have to say. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah. Speaking of the show, so you finished a good run. Um, was there something about the Trump presidency that lent itself to the show, or was there something that changed in not wanting to keep it going, or you know? No, we were. I mean, it wasn't an Axios decision. HBO canceled it, um, and I don't have visibility into why they canceled it. I mean, as you noted, we, we won the Emmy last year for best interview and, and it was canceled a couple of weeks after that. Um, I assume it was a business decision, but again, I have no visibility into it. Look, the challenge with these shows, the challenge with doing what I just described is booking. It's booking. It's getting people to agree to do the interviews. And I would say that is becoming increasingly difficult the more diffuse that media is becoming. The, like, there's no Pop podcasting yeah, yeah. Is, is, is taking this over, right? Well, it's, it's like this. <laughs> I mean, not just not, this not podcast, just, of course. Yeah. Yeah, this, no, 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 it's no, nothing to do with that. No, no, no. Look, the, the thing that's disappeared is convening power. It's disappeared. In the 60s and 70s, you had programs that had, you know, the nightly news and whatever, 20 million, 30 million plus viewers. Politicians had no options. Three networks, they had to go on to get their message out. And that diluted, diluted, diluted. I would say the last anchor that had real convening power was Tim Russett on Meet the Press. And he was sort of living off the fumes of that era. He was very good at it and um, would have amazing... I mean, he had stuff that you couldn't even imagine these days. You go back and watch old Russett, he would have, um, you know, 2002, Dick Cheney on for an hour. The full, We're giving over the full hour today to Dick Cheney. You can't even imagine that these days. His panels would be, I have you know, Senator Joe Biden, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senator Chris Dodd, like he would have the four four heavyweight senators from each party just on a normal random panel. You These days, the audiences are so small, even for the biggest shows, 
that you can't persuade, if, if you're known for doing tough interviews, you can't persuade a politician that it's in their interest to go on the show. They're going to pick a safe space. Most of them, some of them, I'll give them credit, um, actually will do an interview. Um, uh, I'll tell you who's, who, who, who sits down for t- two people who I give credit to in this respect, apart from Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz. They will sit down with almost anyone and, and do an interview. And I respect both of them for that. Um, but it's much harder to get anyone to agree. And even, you know, the funny thing is even within networks, you now have this type of safe space selection. So you might say to me, well, Tucker Carlson has convening power because he's the highest rated show on, on cable TV. You know, obviously he's the top guy at Fox. Um, his show has three million, three and a half million, right? Which is huge for cable, but tiny when you look at it in historical perspective. But if you're a Republican primary candidate and you know that Tucker Carlson is not for you, you have your menu of other options on Fox. So you'll say, well, I might do Hannity and never do Tucker. So you can choose your safe space within the lineup of a safe space. You, you might say Fox is generally my, or, or MSNBC is generally my safe space, but I want to select this person because, you know, whatever. So it's a real problem. And I don't see an obvious solution for it because I think media is becoming more and more diffuse. The, the trend is in the other direction. Um, uh, so I've never seen it necessarily as a sustainable um, career. I've, I've always just seen, well, if I ever have the opportunity, I'm going to just grasp it and do the best possible thing I can because I see how rare these opportunities are. And when I was, you know, last year flying around, they were flying me around the world. I was doing world leaders. I, I did Imran Khan in Islamabad, the Secretary General of NATO. I, I was Zelensky in Kiev. I was always aware that this this is not going to last, that this is a special thing that I'm doing that that at some point will expire. And I wasn't even remotely surprised um, when it ended because, again, I've, I've as you probably can tell, I've spent my life in the media business. I know I know this business very, very well, um, and I, I I don't have any rose tint in my uh, in my glasses uh, looking at the media industry. I know exactly uh, the state of of the industry and and what the challenges are. Jonathan, you talked about how you focus a lot of times on things that interest you most. Um, what are those specific issues in, in your mind? What do you like covering the most? Um, you do a lot of foreign policy, obviously, in addition to the domestic hot button issues. Um, is there something that stands out that you just you really love just sort of getting in there on? Yeah, I do enjoy covering um, foreign policy. I, basically, I enjoy learning. Uh, the, the nice thing about being a journalist is you're not a subject matter expert, unless you really do focus in on uh, you know a particular beat and spend a dedicated lifetime to that beat. Most of the time, you just you have a license to learn about an issue, and so you know if I'm covering um, you know the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know I'm talking to military experts, national security experts. I'm talking to people in Afghanistan. I'm talking to foreign officials who are giving me a sense of the ally relationship. You know, there's so many dimensions to it. But what what you're doing is it's basically uh, uh, a postgraduate education in all these different things. So. Foreign policy, I've always been interested in. Um, trade, I'm very interested in trade and the way that's changing. Um, I'm also increasingly interested in the intra-party conversation within the Republican Party and the uh, the quote-unquote new right and the debates that are going on roiling 
inside the party. And so I find, frankly, that conversation to be really interesting um, and very unresolved. And um, yeah, so those are some of the things I'm interested in, uh, naturally interested in. I'm pretty much economically illiterate. So uh, I, I don't tend to gravitate towards economics. Not a lot of, uh, a lot of crypto coverage. Not a lot of crypto yeah, coverage. yeah, exactly, exactly. I, Bitcoin just confounds me, so I, <laughs> I stay away from, uh, from Bitcoin. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure there's things I'm forgetting, but um, those are some of the things I'm inherently interested. Well, it's in. good to know, Jonathan. Somebody's looking at that that conversation uh, in the Republican Party in the new right. Because uh, I take a lot of fire on this podcast about the civil war within the Democratic Party. Um, and I'm glad people are looking at, you know, I, I always tell people that the civil war in the Republican Party is over. They lost um, and Trump won. But I'm glad you, I'm glad you're spending time and effort on it. But alas, I digress. My question for you is about Saudi Arabia. Um, President Biden's going announced he's going there in July. He's likely to meet with NBS. Mm. What are you hearing about the decision making behind the trip and any, uh, you know, any reaction on the Hill uh, about where our policy may be headed uh, in that region, but particularly with Saudi Arabia? It's a big linchpin in the region, obviously. Well, if you believe Joe Biden, he's not meeting with him. He's just going to be in a, in a meeting with him. Right. It's like something. what they used to do with the Dalai uh, Lama, which, right? Like he was, you know, yeah, he yeah, was yeah, in yeah. the White House. He might. We might breathe the same air yeah, at some yeah, point yeah. in some room, but, you know, right? it's not really, it depends on what the definition of a meeting is, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and he says that his approach hasn't changed. Obviously, uh, that's absurd. Um, it's completely changed. Um, Biden came into office calling um, Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. He used the word pariah and that we have to make him a pariah and he basically signaled that we were going, they were going to fundamentally change the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And obviously early on, they went in that direction with the declassification uh, of the documents uh, showing that, you know, that MBS um, was behind, ultimately responsible for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But very quickly, um, for a number of reasons, but some of them were domestic political reasons, uh, such as energy inflation, um, they changed their policy. They changed their tune. And they, they had senior aides, including Jake Sullivan, fly over, as I'm sure you guys know very well, to meet with MBS um, and uh, basically uh, they had to suck up to him. Um, but he wanted to extract a little more than that and was not thrilled with um, the sort of duality of um, the public statements being you're the most terrible guy in the world and privately, you know, um, you know, stroking. So, so um, it doesn't surprise me at all that he's clearly demanded some kind of a more public uh, embrace. And I think that this has been a torturous decision for Biden because he put himself so far out there um, against MBS, but ultimately for practical reasons, as has happened so many times in the past, uh, they've realized they need the Saudis um, and they can't just discard the Saudis. And so that's where this is, you know, it, it was actually quite predictable, frankly, um, that, that they would end up here. N- not to mention they need them, you know, uh, for national security reasons, as both of you guys are keenly aware. So, um, you know, uh, basically that, that clip you saw or whatever on the tarmac was just 
as you guys know, just like ridiculous. You, you had tweeted, I think last weekend, that uh, you, this is one of the topics. If you got that interview you were yeah. talking about with, with Biden, you would want to ask about. Yeah. What would you ask him about? What would, what, would you, what would you ask? I might start by saying, is, is Mohammed bin Salman a pariah? Is he still a pariah? What, what was the date when you stopped considering him a pariah? And what was the gas price at that point? Um, uh, have, you made, have you changed your moral assessment of the Saudi regime? Help, talk me through that moral evolution. You know, those are just some of the questions I might ask. Yeah, the Iran nuclear deal always always a big topic uh, on the show as well. Um, our last uh, substantive question before we get to our lightning round, which is a little more fun. Uh, how do you see the politics of the Iran deal right now? We we talk a lot about it on the show. We've been covering all the back and forth, the Senate amendments, and all that that that, that went through a few weeks ago. Um, wh- where is it right now? Where where the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill? Where do you see this going? Are are we still going to do a deal, or you or is there a new policy coming? I don't know. Is the truthful answer. Um, as you guys know, there are Democrats on the Hill who are very uneasy with um, the administration's approach on Iran, Senator Menendez being uh, a prime example. Um, but weirdly, Republicans have kind of been quieter about it. They were causing a bit of noise a couple of months ago, but they just really haven't. Um, they don't seem to me to be as energized on this as they were, um, you know, in 2014. Um and 15. So I don't know where it's going to end up. Um, I've always assumed they're going to do a deal because they want a deal so badly. And I just assumed why wouldn't the Iranians pocket a deal, you know, open up the floodgates, get a bit of money. Um, but I don't pretend to be an expert on this or the internal politics in Iran and all this. So I actually have no earthly idea where this ends up. But um, I, I've assumed all along, if you put a gun to my head that um, that they would probably end up with a deal. And that sound you just heard is Rich typing out an email to all his Republican Senate contacts to tell them that they haven't been making enough noise on the Iran deal. So uh, sorry. sorry. Do you disagree with me, Rich? Uh, I don't. I, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. There's a report out this week in Israel Hayom, citing some Lebanese sources that uh, the Iranians have actually now taken the IRGC demand off the table so long as mm. there's enough sanctions relief for the IRGC that comes with it. They can be on the list, but which is where I always thought this would end up at some point. So, so it's interesting. If, if Rob Malley has a job, the policy hasn't changed. That's sort of how I view it. It's interesting to say because I'd heard from a European official probably a month ago that that's where the Iranians were were heading um i was a little skeptical but because i don't i just don't know enough about the internal politics over there but um that's interesting to hear. all right jared anyways my, my, my email has been sent so you can okay, move okay, on okay, with the good. lightning round now so, all right jonathan yeah. we're going to move into the lightning round we have four quick questions for you to try and just get a fill out a little bit of the picture in everybody's mind of who you are as a person um first one is favorite interview subject of your career hmm i really enjoyed interviewing mitch mcconnell yeah. All right. Why is that? Because it was the most challenging. He's just, he's so disciplined and yeah. just as a pure challenge, right. it was, it was really I, I, I will say something that um, for the Josh Holmes and others out there who listen, uh, when I do media prep for new candidates, something that I do on the side sometimes, um, I will show clips of Mitch McConnell at a press conference. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it is the most masterful event to, to behold, I think. He's very good at not answering questions. Oh, yes. 
Favorite journalist you consider a role model or inspiration? I think you already mentioned one on the interviewing side. Anybody else on the reporting side? Uh, probably David Halberstam. Yeah, that's a great answer. You ever the best and the brightest, man. Every I feel like every uh, new journalist or new military officer in this country ought to be required to read that twice. Um, all right, favorite Yiddish or Hebrew phrase: "Profanity is allowed." I, I like the like the way it sounds in the mouth. Meshugana uh, is probably my. Uh, it just has a nice feel to you it. Cover DC politics, so that's, the that's, best. that's part of the course. Yeah. So Meshugana would be great. All right, Rich, yeah. one more. Come on. And finally, and finally, fa- favorite Jewish food: potato lapkis. Oh, you do such a great with answer. sour yeah, cream or wonderful. with applesauce or some other topping or ketchup. I know it's kind of weird. I just like them. Like I like to taste the oil and the fat, and I just like the like. Just it gives me a nice feeling. I feel like if I put something on it, it somehow dilutes it. Um, I don't think it's weird, but you need enough. I do salt, like maybe. chicken. Like I do like chi- I do like chicken soup and knadlach, as we call it. Oh. You would call it chicken. You know, that's all soup or whatever. Can we, we call, call it knadlach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're in yeah. Glasgow, they call knadlach. So I don't know if that's knadlach is what you know, whatever. Um, yeah, I pretty much like all um, fried, you know, heavily fried um, Jewish food. And my grandma used to make kanaila with like you could see the globules of yeah. fat just floating in the in the soup, and it was just like, mm, yeah. you know, you know what? Nobody's ever said gribbonous on this yeah. show. That, that that that's something that, that I didn't say gribbonous. I said no. Gribbonous. I know nobody's ever oh. said. But I'm just thinking oh. of like I'm thinking of like oh. the most unhealthy fat fried. Like they right. literally that is it's, what it is. Fried it's, potato knish from Yona Schimmel's on Housen Street. That's been around mm. for over a hundred years. Highly recommend it. Um, Jonathan, next trip to New York. Happy to meet you there for Kanisha Yona Schimmel's. Uh, can't go wrong there. All right. I, yeah, I also like Ruglach, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, could, we could go on. Yeah. Jonathan Swan, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Great to have you on. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Run, run.